0: i invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And uh, this morning we will be looking at verses 35 to 39. Romans chapter 8 and uh, looking at verses 35 to 39. As you're turning there, I want to remind you that next Sunday we will be uh, having a prayer service here at the church at 6 p.m., And all are invited to the prayer service and really want to encourage you to come and be a part of that time together as a church. It's a wonderful time for us to worship the Lord and express our dependence upon Him in prayer. So next Sunday at 6 p.m., we'll meet for a prayer service, and then following the prayer service, we'll ask our members to stay behind for a short members meeting. This morning we're in Romans 8, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 28 and read through to the end of the chapter. So, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your great love for us in Christ. And we are thankful for how Your Word so faithfully and beautifully proclaims that love to us. We pray now, Lord, that as we turn to the Scriptures that You would cause the reality of Your love to be real to our own hearts, and that we would be encouraged and strengthened, sustained and comforted. And Lord, we pray that our hope and faith in You would grow and increase. So Father, give us insight into Your Word now, and uh, we pray that You would bless this time by the power of Your Holy Spirit. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I have mentioned that some consider Romans chapter 8 to be the greatest chapter in the greatest letter in the greatest book ever written. So, Romans 8 is the greatest chapter, the greatest letter being Paul's letter to the Romans, and the greatest book being the Bible. And this morning, we will conclude our study in this extraordinary chapter. Some have likened the end of Romans chapter 8 to a staircase, and essentially what's happening here is over the last several weeks as we've been working through Romans chapter 8, is we've been taking one step further up that staircase, ascending higher and higher and higher as it builds and builds and now reaches the pinnacle, the apex, as Paul escorts us into the glories of God's everlasting love for His people. As Paul has led us on this journey in the latter part of Romans chapter 8, there are five questions that have served as kind of trail markers along the way. And you see them there in the text. Verse 31, the first question, if God is for us, who can be against us? A second question in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Question three in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The fourth question is found in verse 34, who is to condemn? And now this final question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? John Stott, in commenting on these questions, writes, quote, Paul hurls these questions into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain, end of quote. Well, this morning we'll give our attention to Paul's final question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And so I want us to consider that question, and then after we consider that question, we will see three assurances of Christ's love. And each one of these is consequential, because if we are to experience the certainty, the hope of Christ's love for us, then we also must possess this bold defiance to resist all the forces of heaven and earth that would cause us to doubt God's great love for us in Christ. So this morning our outline is the question. We'll consider the question in verse 35, and then we'll consider three assurances of Christ's love in verses 36 to 39. And I'll go ahead and give you those assurances. I know a number of you are taking notes, so we'll see the assurance of Christ's love found in the Scriptures, the assurance of Christ's love found in God's sovereignty, and the assurance of Christ's love found in Paul's testimony So the question, and then three assurances, the assurance of Scripture, of God's sovereignty, and of Paul's testimony. All right, so look at the question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, we've seen this in Romans 8 before, that sometimes Paul will pose a question, and part of the answer to that question is found in the question itself. And we see that again here in verse 35. Notice... If you look there again carefully in question, we read these words, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, who is the us that Paul is referring to here in verse 35? Well, if we look at the larger context of Romans 8, and especially the latter part of the chapter, we see that the us here refers to those in verses 28 to 30 whom God foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. The us also refers to those in verse 31 for whom God is for. The us here also refers to those in verse 32 for whom God gave up His own Son. The us also refers to those who we saw last week in verses 33 and 34 who are God's elect and for whom God, or actually the Lord Jesus, Himself is presently interceding. So when we consider of whom Paul speaks here in our text he is speaking of God's elect he's speaking of God's chosen ones of course the answer is no one nothing can separate us from the love of Christ but we also see further from the question in this question that there's a there's another part of the answer so we've seen of whom Paul speaks But notice also in the question of whose love Paul speaks. It is the love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So notice here in our text, Paul is not speaking here of our love for Christ, but rather he's speaking of Christ's love for us. This is further confirmed when Paul goes on to state, In verse 37, that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And in verse 39, when he speaks of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the reason, here's the foundation for our great confidence, our great peace in God's love for us. Our assurance does not rest in our love for Christ, but rather in Christ's perfect love for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones states it this way, quote, What matters is God's love to us, not our love to God. Our love is weak and frail and and, uh, fallible. It wanes and waxes, comes and goes. Thank God my salvation does not depend on me, but on God's love to me. Not upon my frail grip of Him, but upon His strong grasp of me, end of quote. And so it is with great confidence that we can say, nothing shall separate us, no one shall separate us from the love of Christ, for Christ's love for us will never fail. Now of course this point that Paul is making in verse 35 is true in every and all circumstances. Nothing, no one can separate us from the love of Christ. But I want you to see here in the text that Paul intends to test this claim in, very, in a very specific set of circumstances. Look there in the text again in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And here it is. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Now whenever we see a list like this in the Scriptures we should pause and give some thought to whether or not we can discern a pattern or a common theme in the list. And the prevailing theme in this list is persecution. In fact, we recognize as we read through this list that the list is autobiographical for the Apostle Paul. In other words, in laying out this list, Paul is telling his story. He's telling his story as a Christian as a faithful missionary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are all hardships that Paul has experienced as he has followed Christ in discipleship and faithfully proclaimed his gospel and made disciples of all nations. The first three here that are mentioned in the list are similar and could be categorized more generally under the head of persecution. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution. The following two could be labeled as persecution experienced through physical hardship, famine, or nakedness. And then the last two could be identified as persecution at the hand of others, danger, and the sword. And Paul knew all of these hardships as a consequence of his missionary work. Paul especially gives us insight into the sufferings that he endured in his missionary endeavors when he writes his letters to the church in Corinth. There's many places that we could turn in those letters, but just one example is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 28. Paul writes, "'Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned.'" Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship." through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You see, what Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 8 is the sufferings that he has experienced in his faithfulness as a Christian missionary. For some time we've been going through this series in which we've been considering the theme of living the gospel. So, our mission statement is that we exist to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. And we've been considering this theme of living the gospel from Romans chapter 6 through 8. And in these chapters, as we think about living the gospel, Paul has been telling us who we are in Christ and how we can live consistently with our identity in Christ. And as we wrap up this study this morning in Romans chapter 6 through 8, next week we will turn our attention to the theme of proclaiming the gospel. So we've been focused on living the gospel. Next week we're going to start a series on the theme of proclaiming the gospel. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13 and 14 and Paul's first missionary journey. And this text here at the end of chapter 8 of Romans is a perfect transition text for doing that, for moving from living the gospel to proclaiming the gospel. Because one of the things we see here in the final verses of Romans chapter 8 is that the security and the assurance of Christ's love that God offers to us in the gospel is not just for our own personal comfort. It's not just for our own personal peace. Rather, God reveals His unconquerable love for us in Christ in order to sustain us and strengthen us for the mission to which He has called us. Do you see how Paul proclaims the everlasting love of Christ in the context of missionary endeavors? We see here that security and assurance in God's great love for us in Christ should not result in selfish, selfish preoccupation, but rather in sacrificial love and bold gospel witness. In other words, this is how we should read a text like this. This is how we should think through it and rationalize through it in our own minds. If God is for me, if God gave up His own Son for my redemption, if my justification and standing before God is sure and certain in God and in Christ, if nothing can separate me from the love of Christ, then I can boldly share Christ with others. Then I can endure the mocking of my family. I can endure the awkward silence of my coworkers. I can endure the rejection of my peers at school. I can endure the hardships of moving my family from one country and culture to another country and culture. I can endure the very real persecution that might come my way for sharing Christ among the people who reject Him. So notice in verse 35 that Paul is asking a question, but he's asking a very specific question. Not just what can separate us from the love of Christ, but the very specific question Paul is taking up is, can the hardships and sufferings that come along with faithful gospel witness separate me from the love of Christ? And we see here that the love of Christ has everything to do with the mission of God. Because we will only share Christ boldly. We will only share Him broadly. We will only share Him effectively if we are persuaded and convinced that He loves us deeply. So that's the question. And we see that even within the question itself, there's an answer. But then I want us to turn now to three assurances that Paul gives us of Christ's love. Okay? Three assurances. Now, so Paul is seeking to establish this point, and so he wants to give us three assurances by which we can know that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And the first assurance is found in Scripture. So notice in verse 36, Paul writes, "...as it is written..." For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul wants to establish this truth in verse 35, and so Paul appeals to the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, as it is written. Well, where is it written? It's written in Psalm 44. Psalm 44, verse 22. Now, some of you might want to just turn to Psalm 44. I'm going to quickly survey the psalm as a whole, I think it's just fascinating to see how Paul is using this text here in Romans chapter 8. But Psalm 44 has 26 verses. And the first eight verses of Psalm 44 are essentially a meditation on God's faithfulness to His people Israel. So in, in, in the first eight verses, the psalmist is rejoicing that the Lord has been faithful to His people and good to His people and He's provided for His people. And then in verse 9 of Psalm 44, there's this significant shift that takes place. So in verse 9 of Psalm 44, we read, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. So the first eight verses of Psalm 44, the psalmist is rejoicing in the Lord's past faithfulness. But then in verse 9, he says, But our present reality is you've forsaken us. We feel abandoned. And the psalmist goes on then to describe the hardships that the people of God are now experiencing. So in verse 11, he says, they've been scattered among the nations. They have been made as a taunt to their neighbors in derision, and a derision and scorn to those who are around them. And then in verses 17 and 18 of the same psalm, the psalmist declares, all this has come upon us, here it is, Though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. In other words, the psalmist is saying the suffering that we are experiencing as the people of God is real. But it's not because of our unfaithfulness. It's not because of our disobedience. Lord, we've been faithful to you. We've been faithful to your way. And then in Psalm 44, verse 22, the psalmist writes, and this is Paul's citation here in Romans 8, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, Lord, it's because we are faithful to you. It's because we are obedient to you. It's for your sake that we are being so mistreated. And so do you see how Paul is deriving hope from Psalm 44. Paul sees in Psalm 44 that a life of faithfulness to God is not free from suffering. That a life of faithfulness to God does not mean a life of uninterrupted wealth and health and prosperity. And Paul sees in Psalm 44 that that's always been the case. It's nothing new. It was true of the psalmist and the people of God in Psalm 44. My friends, this is so important for us to understand as we live the Christian life. Because do you remember from last week, you remember the accuser in verses 33 and 34? When trouble, the accuser is Satan, right? And he accuses the brethren day and night. And when trouble and when tragedy befalls our lives, do you want to know one of his first strategies? To accuse you. To condemn you. This is all your fault. You brought this upon Yourself. He will cause us to question whether God really is for us. He will seek to convince us that the the circumstances that we are experiencing are actually God charging us and condemning us through our circumstances. He will tempt us to believe that our current circumstances are evidence that God does not love us and is not committed to us. And so what are our, what's our hope in those moments? Well, one thing is to recognize that, that suffering is not necessarily a sign of unfaithfulness. That the faithful, the people of God, the faithful people of God suffer in this life as we see in Psalm 44. But that's not the only hope we have. Going back to Psalm 44, in the very last stanza of Psalm 44, the psalmist turns to the Lord in prayer. And in Psalm 44, verse 23, he prays. It's just the last few verses of Psalm 44. In Psalm 44, verse 23, he prays, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. And then he concludes the psalm with these words. Psalm 44, verse 26. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake, here it is, of your stead." love. And that is the last word in Psalm 44. In Hebrew, it's hesed, your steadfast love. Do you see why Paul chose Psalm 44? Psalm 44 teaches us that when the people of God are suffering for their faithfulness to God, not as a consequence of their disobedience, but as a result of their obedience, and when they feel forsaken and abandoned, the one thing they can hope in, the final and ultimate hope they have, is the hesed of God, the steadfast love of God that will always be constant and sure and certain. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall heartbreaking hardships or terrible persecutions that come our way because of faithful gospel ministry? Paul says no, because God has already demonstrated in his word in Psalm 44 that when his people faithfully suffer for his name's sake, his love is sure and certain and steadfast and will see us through. So the first assurance is the assurance found in Scripture. The second assurance, the second assurance we see in verse 37, and it is an assurance of God's love found in God's sovereignty. Found in God's sovereignty. Look there in verse 37. Paul writes, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That word translated more than conquerors there, it's I guess five words in English, is actually just one word in Greek. It's a kind of a fun word. It's hupernikao. It's a combination of two words. The first word is "hooper," which means above or beyond. It's the word from which we get the word hyper. So if you have a hyperactive child or you yourself are hyperactive, your activity level is above. It's beyond the normal activity level. The other word that's being used here is nikao. It's the Greek word for victory. And some of you might be wearing some nice Nike Air Jordans this morning, and the sports brand Nike is simply the Greek word victory. So, what we have here, what Paul is speaking of here, is an above or beyond victory. We could translate Paul's words as, in all these things, we are hyper, super victorious. One translation translates Paul's words, we overwhelmingly conquer. One Greek dictionary translates Paul's words here, we prevail completely. We are winning a most glorious victory. And notice here in the text that we win, but the victory is not finally ours in the sense that we are not finally causing or bringing about the victory. You see it there in the text. We are more than conquerors. Here it is, through Him who loved us. That is, the victory is won by and through the Lord Jesus. And it's worthy of our attention here that Christ, that Paul speaks here of Christ's love in the past tense. You know, last week we saw Christ's perpetual care for his people, that he's currently at the right hand of the Father and he's currently interceding for us. Christ's perpetual, ongoing, present care for his people. But here, Paul makes reference to Christ's past action of love for us, because Christ's love was ultimately demonstrated for us when? In the cross. Through Him who loved us, Paul is referring to the death of Jesus, the supreme demonstration of Christ's love for us. He loved us even unto death, as He died the death that we deserve for our sin, so that through faith in Him we might know forgiveness and life. Paul says it is through Him, it is through Him who loved us, who died for us, that we possess this overwhelming victory. We are winning a most glorious victory. And notice when and where we experience this victory. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, what does Paul have in mind when he says, in all these things? We just have to look back, right, to the previous verses. He's referring, when he speaks of all these things, he's referring to verses 35 and 36. In tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in sword, in being killed all the day, in being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, in all these things. It doesn't seem like it in the moment, does it? But Paul says we have a surpassing victory, an overwhelming victory, a glorious victory. And it's here that we see God's sovereign love and care for His people. And when I say sovereign, I mean by His authority, by His power, by His rule, by His reign. He is working victory for His people. Sometimes God mercifully delivers us from these afflictions. But notice that's not the promise here in Romans 8. The promise here is not that we will escape these afflictions and thereby overwhelmingly conquer and win a most glorious victory. The promise here is that it is in all these things that we will overwhelmingly conquer and win a most glorious victory. Now how does that happen? You remember back in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, you remember the promise there that God works all things together for good, for those who love Him, Listen, my friends, this is not some cold calculating computer program that God kind of inserted into the universe and now it just independently runs and plays itself out. No, this, this reality of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where God is working all things together for the good of his people, this is played out. By God's providential loving care for His people as He orchestrates all the particular events and circumstances of our lives to ultimately conform us to the image of His Son and secure our eternal redemption. In this way it is God in His love that takes the events and circumstances in our life that seem to be our worst enemies. And in a in an amazing and mysterious divine reversal, transforms them into our closest friends. As He uses them to mold us, to shape us, to preserve us, to keep us, to bring us to salvation. I recently finished reading the Gospel of Luke in my Bible reading, and as I was reading through the last week of Jesus' life, it struck me again that Humanly speaking, in the last week of Jesus' life, basically everything, humanly speaking, went wrong. You could imagine the Lord Jesus facing the week before Him that He faced. And you could imagine Him thinking in His own mind, we do this, don't we? Oh, well, if, if that person would speak on my behalf, or if that person would come to my aid, or if that event would happen that would lead in this direction that would prevent me from facing this adversity. None of that happened. Everything went wrong. Judas betrays Him. Every one of His disciples forsake Him. The Jewish religious and political leaders conspire with the Roman political leaders to crucify Him. Nothing seems to go in Jesus' favor, and yet everything is happening just as His loving Father has planned and purposed. And so it was not by way of escape that Jesus won a victory over the cross, but rather it was in and through betrayal in all these things. It was in and through betrayal and desertion and false charges and beatings and the cross that Jesus ultimately won an overwhelming victory and won a most glorious victory over sin and death and hell. And my friends, it is, as Paul states here, God's love. It is God's love that likewise works and orchestrates in our lives all the events, all the circumstances, all the hardships of our lives to ensure our final and ultimate victory. So, Paul points here to the Scriptures as an assurance of Christ's love. He points to God's sovereignty as an assurance of Christ's love for us. That God is using His sovereignty in His love to bring about all things for our good. And then third and finally, an assurance of God's love found in Paul's testimony. An assurance of God's love found in Paul's testimony. Look there in verse 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now up to this point, Paul has been providing arguments for why we can be assured as Christians that God is for us and that Christ's love for us is unfailing. But now, as Paul concludes this section, Paul shifts from arguments to personal testimony. Do you see that? He says, "...for I am sure that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord." So what we see here is that Paul is contending that the love of God in Christ is not just a logical idea, it's not just a rational argument or a plausible theory. Paul is testifying that he himself personally knows the love of Christ and he knows that it is sustaining, that it is sufficient by personal experience. Paul is saying, I've tested it in the field. I've examined it in the most extreme real world situations and it's passed the test. It is the real deal. I remember as a college student at uh, Columbia Bible College in Columbia, South Carolina, we had the unique opportunity uh, one time to hear Richard Wurmbrand speak in chapel. And uh, Wurmbrand was a Christian pastor in Romania under the rule harsh rule of a communist regime. And he suffered terribly in prison for many, many years as a result of his faithfulness to Christ and to the Gospel. Uh, His most well-known book, you may have heard of it before, is entitled, Tortured for Christ. And um, He had an extensive ministry uh, after he was eventually released from prison. But in his book, Tortured for Christ, he writes these words, quote, "...it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accept the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. End of quote. And I remember Warnbrand when he came to speak at Chapel. He must have been in his 80s at the time. I don't know. He was an older man. He had to sit down in a chair because he couldn't stand. And he told of one experience after another, akin to what I just read. And it was powerful. It was compelling. And one of the reasons why his testimony was so powerful, why it was so persuasive, was that he not only spoke of God's love as an idea, but through almost unimaginable sufferings, he testified to the sustaining power and sufficiency of God's love in Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. Paul is saying, listen, having experienced all the sufferings listed in verses 35 and 36. Having suffered famine and nakedness. Having been beaten and stoned. Having been persecuted in face of distress. Having experienced all of these things. I am sure of this. That nothing, no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our lord i said earlier that romans chapter 8 kind of builds like a staircase we're taking one step along the way with the apostle paul as he is our guide and here paul leads us to take a final step in our consideration of the boundless love of god And we notice here in our text that that we're still still ascending. We're still going up because when we compare the, the list in verse 35 and 36 with the list here in verse 38 and 39, there's clearly an escalation. So the obstacles that Paul mentions in verse 35 and 36, they are formidable. Even extreme. Persecution. Distress. Famine. Sword. But here... Here the list is inconceivable. It's incomprehensible. It it, it expands our minds beyond their limits. Look at the list here in verse 38 and 39. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In some ways, I regret that I don't, I'm not able to preach an entire sermon here on this list that's contained in these two verses, but I just let me just say a quick word about the list here. It seems to me that the first item and the last item in the list can be reasonably paired with one another. Notice there, he says, on the one hand, neither death nor life, and then he mentions, nor anything else in all creation. What he's speaking of here is all that is contained of in the extremities of the human experience. Life and death and anything else in all creation that could be experienced between life and death. The next we see that angels nor rulers and powers seem to coincide with one another. Here Paul is speaking of all of those spiritual beings both good and evil, angels and demons who inhabit the spiritual realm. Then he speaks of those things present and things to come. And he speaks of, which can be, ha- can be paired with, height and depth. These seem to correspond with one another. In other words, in these two expressions, expressions, Paul covers the entire space-time continuum. The past and the future. The unlimited heights in depths of space and as a whole if we look at the list as a whole paul says none of these things the extremities of human existence all the powers of the spiritual realm the vastness of all time and space nothing can separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord listen paul was a pastor He knew how resistant our hearts are to trusting, resting in the goodness of the love of God. And do you see what Paul is so graciously doing here for each one of us? Paul is anticipating every possible objection, every possible exception, every possible loophole That would cause our unbelieving hearts to question God's love for us in Christ. And Paul rebuts every objection. He eliminates every exception. He closes every loophole. He does so with these sweeping, universal, cosmic categories. And in so doing, he assures us of God's unquestionable, unconquerable, unending love for us. In Christ. So Paul poses this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he apprides three assurances. An assurance from God's Word. An assurance from God's sovereignty. An assurance by way of his own personal testimony. Now just briefly, two quick applications. One, first application for non-Christians. For those who have not yet trusted in Christ. Paul speaks here in our text of God's boundless, inexhaustible, unfailing, and eternal love. But notice in our text that it is not an altogether indiscriminate love. In fact, there is an exclusiveness, an exclusive nature to God's love. Do you see it there in verse 39? The love of God in... Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this, my friends, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the only way that we can truly know and experience God's great love is in His Son, Jesus Christ. For many non Christians, their understanding of God's love tends to be presumptuous. Of course, God loves me, that's His job. It's not His job. It also tends to be unstable. So, whenever adversity strikes, they doubt God's love because they never really had a strong foundation for believing in God's love in the first place. It was simply assumed. But do you see here in Romans chapter 8 that we find here a faith in God's love that is neither presumptuous nor unstable? It is not presumptuous to trust in Christ's Word and in the Word of His Apostles. And in the historical reality of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead and the words of God recorded for us in Holy Scripture, we find a sure and certain and firm foundation upon which to believe in the love of God for us. And so let me encourage you to trust in the Lord Jesus to turn from your sins and a trust in the atoning sacrifice of Christ for your sins and be assured of God's love for you in Christ. The second application is this, and it's for Christians, for those who have trusted in Christ and are currently relying upon Him. Notice the testimony of the Apostle Paul in verse 39. He says, I am sure... I am sure. Some translations translate Paul's words there, I am persuaded, I am convinced that no one, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're a Christian this morning, I want to ask you, is that your testimony? Are you sure? Are you persuaded? Are you convinced? This series in Romans chapter 6 through 8, we've been considering the theme of living the gospel, as I mentioned earlier. We could say it this way we've been considering the theme of sanctification. That is how God sanctifies us, how he makes us holy in Christ and conforms us to the image of his son. And so as Paul's been laying out for us in Romans 6 through 8, how it is that we can be sanctified, how it is that we can live the gospel, why does he conclude this discussion in Romans 6 through 8 by emphasizing God's unquestionable commitment to us, his sovereign care for us, his everlasting love for us? My friends, I hope you know the reason why Paul ends Romans 8 this way is because our confidence and assurance in God's love for us is absolutely essential to our sanctification. Gritting your teeth and personal discipline will only get you so far if you don't have a deep, settled, fixed conviction that God loves you. Really, really loves you now and always and forever. This, of course, is arguably the most precious gift that any parent could give to a child. Their love for that child. Some children will spurn it. Others will receive it and blossom and flourish as a result. But most without it will struggle to find their way in this life. Until they come across someone who gives them something of that experience, gives them something of that love, or they discover that love in their Heavenly Father. And in the Gospel, and in particular in Romans 8, notice here that our Heavenly Father is just showering us with His eternal, inexhaustible, unconquering, extravagant love for His people. Carl Barth, one of the most well-known theologians of the 20th century, and I would not commend all his theology to you, but he was a very well-known theologian in the 20th century. He was reportedly asked one time, if you could summarize your theology in one sentence, what would it be? And he responded, in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's good. That's really good. Of all the volumes of philosophy and theology that he wrote, he summarized it all in that one statement. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Do you believe that? Are you sure? Are you convinced? Are you persuaded? If not, sing it to yourself. Again and again and again. When you wake up in the morning, after you have lunch in the afternoon, in the evening, before you go to bed at night, commit these verses here, the last four or five verses of Romans chapter 8. Commit them to memory and remind yourself of them again and again and again. Allow God through His Word to shower His love upon you until by the grace of God you are sure You are convinced. You are persuaded. You will not make much progress in the Christian life until you are. And Paul gives us every reason, every reason here in our text to be persuaded, to be convinced, to be sure. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word as a whole. And yet, Lord, there are some parts of Scripture that speak to us so powerfully and just resonate in our hearts and we feel the need for so deeply and lord we recognize that in romans chapter 8 and we thank you for these precious words and for these glorious gospel truths lord i pray that you would um help us as we've been walking through romans 8 over the last several weeks i pray that you would help us lord to not forget these great promises, but Lord, I pray that they would be written on our hearts and Lord, that we would return to them again and again and again. Father, for those who are here this morning who have never experienced Your great love through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that even this morning You would melt their hearts and that they would know Your grace in Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are us, who are believers. Lord, we confess that we often in our own sin and unbelief doubt Your love. Lord, forgive us. And we pray, Lord, that You would assure us of Your love and that we would walk confidently and boldly, not presumptuously, but humbly and confidently and boldly in Your great love for us. May we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that You are for us in Christ. Do this, we pray, for the sake of Your name, and may we be faithful as we know Your love to share Your love with others. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.